The book of Mark chronicles the last three years of Jesus here on earth. They were pretty intense years, to say the least. Since meeting John the Baptist, he was faced with temptations in the desert, performed miracles, healed people, gained followers, was transfigured and died a criminal's death, only to be raised from the dead. Why should all this matter to you and me? Join us for the last three. So we're continuing our series in the book of Mark. Our series is entitled The Last Three as we look at the last three years of Jesus' life. We're moving till near the end where we're going to be speaking about the last three days of Jesus' life as we move into the last month before uh, Easter, which is just a couple weeks away. We're now in the season of Lent. Many of you, we celebrated Ash Wednesday together with our Crossbridge family at Pinecrest. It was a beautiful service. I always say Ash Wednesday is one of my favorite services uh, of the year because we contemplate and we deal with something in our culture that we don't want to speak about, and that's our mortality and our limitations, but we see the unlimited love of God. And so we're now in this season of Lent. We're in this period where we're moving and journeying towards Easter, and we're moving with Jesus. So at this point in our story, we're picking up in Mark chapter 10. So if you have your Bible, you can turn there. Or if you have the Crossbridge Brickle app, you can click on the notes icon, follow along as well. Mark chapter 10, verse 35 is where we're going to begin this evening. We left off last week with one of our elders here, Phil, preaching about the transfiguration of Christ. And it was an amazing sermon. I loved being able to tune in. And so welcome to you all online. I was online with everybody else last week, and it's amazing to be able to connect with you all even when we're apart physically. But what's happened from this point on, from last week to now, is Jesus is moving with his disciples towards Jerusalem. So Jesus is walking literally towards the last week of his life, and he's moving with his disciples, but not his disciples alone. There's a great crowd of people that are following after Jesus because Jesus is a significant figure in society. He is an important figure. He's controversial, but he's very significant. His teachings, his miracles, the things that he does, the people he associates with is breaking everyone's expectation, and now there's this following behind him. And so Jesus is moving with the disciples and with a crowd of people on their way to Jerusalem, and it says that Jesus pulls aside his disciples to share with them something he's told them several times, but he wants them to really get this. He says, we're heading to Jerusalem. This is where I'm going to be condemned by the religious leaders, killed, but I will rise in glory. So from this moment as they're moving, something very interesting takes place. James and John, who were just with Peter last week and saw the transfigured Christ in glory, with Elijah on one side and Moses on the other. James and John seize the moment because you have to imagine the disciples are feeling quite significant themselves. Jesus is this very famous and influential figure. They are his disciples. They they are the rabbi's disciples and they understand more of who he is than just a teacher. They believe he's the son of man, the son of God. They don't have all the pieces worked out. But when Jesus says that he's going to be condemned and killed and rise in glory, James and John are thinking about that rise in glory piece. And here's what takes place. Starting in verse 35, we read this. James and John 
the sons of Zebedee, their brothers, they came up to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. What a question. Hey, Jesus, whatever we ask, it's like Jesus is a genie. Whatever we ask, we want you to do it, okay? Jesus responds, he says to them, what do you want me to do for you? And, he said, and, and they said to him, grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. So Jesus has this great following. He's this significant figure. Peter, James, and John, last week they saw the transfigured Christ in glory. Jesus has just told the disciples they're going to Jerusalem. He's going to be condemned killed, but he will rise in glory. And James and John, brothers, are like, hey, we got to seize the moment. So they pull Jesus aside and say, listen, whatever we ask of you, will you, will you please do this? We want to take Moses and Elijah's place. When you rise in glory, now they don't really fully understand what that means. Because we see that after Jesus is killed, they run, they hide. They, they struggle to understand that Jesus is going to physically rise from the dead. But they tap into that glory aspect. And they say, Jesus, you're a significant figure. We believe something's going to happen. We want that position. Can we have that position? And so Jesus responds to them. After he asks the question and they share, we want, we want that, that position of honor, that position of glory. You're right and you're left. We're brothers. We're significant. Put us there, please. Jesus says to them, verse 38, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? Now, what Jesus is saying here is not simply you're not baptized the same way I was as we looked at in the very beginning of the book of Mark. He's not speaking about baptism in terms of the physical baptism where the, the, the dove descended the Holy Spirit and, the, and, the whole, and the God the Father pronounced over him that this is the son in whom he is well pleased. This is Jesus, the son of God. It's not that. See, the word cup, oftentimes in scripture, it's a biblical metaphor used to describe God's wrath. So Jesus is saying, you don't want to drink the cup that I'm going to drink. You don't want to drink God's wrath that I'm going to drink. And then you don't want to be baptized in the same way that I am. See, the Greeks use the word baptism they use that language to describe being overwhelmed by disaster, being submerged under disaster. So Jesus' question to them is, I don't think you understand what you're asking. Do you want to drink the cup of God's wrath that I'm going to drink? Do you want to be submerged under the disaster that I am going to be submerged under, as I just told you? Ready for the arrogance? Verse 39. And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. So they hear all this. They're still locked into glory. They want power. They want greatness. And so they say, yeah, that's fine. We will drink the cup as long as we have those positions that Moses and Elijah have. We want, we want that placement. And so Jesus gives this prophetic word. He says, you will drink this type of cup. You will be baptized in this way. Now, we see this prophetic word fulfilled in two ways. One, 
James and John and the rest of the disciples, they do drink a cup of judgment. Now, not God's judgment, but a cup of judgment in their persecution. They do experience an overwhelming disaster in their life as they face much persecution by the Jewish leaders and the Roman government, as all of them, except for John, who's exiled, not much greater, they're all killed and martyred for their faith as they preach the gospel, as they establish the church after Christ rises from the dead and ascends into heaven. So they do face this overwhelming disaster and this cup of judgment from other people upon them. But the other way that this is fulfilled is in the sacraments. Jesus gives us two sacraments in the church, communion and baptism. And in the sacraments, we identify with Jesus. So if we think about communion, we identify with Jesus. It's a means of grace to us, but we identify with him in his death. His body broken for us. His blood shed. We have a cup that we drink from to identify and remember that Jesus took the cup that we deserve. He took God's wrath that we deserve so that we might now take the cup, not of God's judgment, but the cup that Jesus drank for our sake. And even in baptism, When we baptize here at Crossbridge Church, adults, we go to the beach and we submerge them under the water. And what do we say? Buried in Christ, risen in Christ. You identify with Christ in his death and his burial as you are submerged under the waters, but you do not not remain in the disaster of your own sin. You are pulled out of those waters. You see... Jesus is making a statement that not only applies to James and John, but it applies to us that we actually identify with Jesus in his death, in his burial, and as we celebrate each and every Sunday, and notably on Easter Sunday, in his resurrection, that we identify with the cup that Jesus took and drank from, the wrath of God that was poured out upon him on the cross that is not ours because he took it, And the disaster that he endured on Calvary through his sufferings and his condemnation and his burial that is not ours either because he took it for us. We identify with him in that, that what is ours because of what Jesus has done is mercy and not judgment. So we identify with the cup, but for us it's not a cup of judgment and it's not a baptism of judgment. It's a cup of mercy and a baptism of mercy. And so Jesus, as he understands more what James and John are really after here, which is greatness and power, Jesus wants them to understand, not just them, but everybody else around us here this evening, where true power is found, where true greatness is found. If you want to be great in the kingdom of God, if you want to be great, here is the truth that Jesus shares, starting in verse 40. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Of course, they heard James and John pull Jesus aside and tried to get the positions of power. They're not happy with James and John. Next verse. And Jesus called them to him and said to them. Now he gathers them all around, and he wants everybody to understand, because now James and John, they want the seat of power. They want to be great. Jesus has said, no, it's not mine to grant. Now all the other disciples are mad at them because they also want the power. They want to be great. They want the position of glory. And so Jesus pulls them all together, and he says this. 
you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. He's saying this is how the world pursues power. If you have power, you use it and you lord it over other people. The way that the world operates in terms of becoming great and powerful is that you grab after power, you seek after power, you take power when you have the opportunity and you hold on to it and you lord it over other people. This is how the world operates. So it kind of makes sense why James and John are like, hey, listen, now we got a chance. Let's seize the moment. Can we have the position of honor? Can we be on the right and the left? We want the power. We want to be great. Jesus is saying that is how the world operates with power. This is not in God's economy. This is not how power and greatness looks in God's economy. So he gives the answer of what it looks like, how power is found in God's economy. He says this, but it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. So it's not going to be this way among you. You're not going to seek after power and hold on to power and lord it over other people. If you want to be great, you must be a servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave to all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus' response is very famous. We quote it all the time. And many of us model our leadership after this. We say that power is found in servitude. We use this terminology that we want servant leaders, that real leaders are people that serve, not look to be served, that real power is found in the humility to not seek attention and acclaim and the willingness to be last and not first. This is how God's economy operates. This is what power and leadership looks like. You want to be great? You need to be willing to be last. You want to be powerful? You need to be a person of service to other people. Now, so many times when this sermon is preached, this passage is preached, the sermon is stopped here. Maybe you've spent time in devotionals or Bible studies. You've heard this passage preached before, and you stop right here. And there's a, the sermon is about Christian leadership and what Christian power and leadership looks like. And you're to be a servant, a servant leader, and not hoarding to power and looking to serve other people. And the, and the answer there is, if you doubt that this is how it works in God's economy, in God's upside-down kingdom, Jesus says, well, look at me. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And if you don't believe that, Jesus' statement here to his disciples, and we know is validated now 2,000 years later... He says, well, in about a week, a little bit more, you're going to see me prove it because I'm going to give my life as a ransom for many. I'm going to give my life away for other people. Talk about the greatest act of service. So we stop here oftentimes. And that's understandable because there's so many truths of Christian leadership and power here in this passage. But I want to share with you something different. Something I saw for the first time in my life this week. I've never seen this before, and I really believe that this is the word that God wants us as a church to hear. Right after this, when Jesus makes this statement, for the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, and he gives them this lesson on power and Christian leadership. It continues in the same chapter. It says this in verse 46 and following. And they came to Jericho, 
And he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd. So they're all moving. Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of God, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus is continued with his disciples and the great crowd. They go to Jericho. It's not too far from Jerusalem. They're leaving Jerusalem, and there's this blind beggar, Bartimaeus. He hears that Jesus of Nazareth is there in his town. Now, people know Jesus. Remember, I said he's significant, influential. He believes that Jesus is the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Son of David, as he calls him here. And that lineage, that prophetic lineage of the Messiah will come from the line of David. And so he pleads for mercy. Son of David, have mercy on me. It says that the crowd, they rebuke him and they tell him to be quiet. Now, why would they do that? Well, you have to understand something. In this time, if you had a a physical disability, that was viewed as God's judgment upon you by many people, because the the assumption was you must have done something very bad. You must have been, you're an extremely sinful person because now God is judging you by making you blind, or lame, or deaf, or any kind of physical disability that you are receiving your lot. You are getting what you deserve, the curses of God poured out upon you. And so this man, who is this blind beggar who people view as being condemned and judged by God is calling out to Jesus, and they're like, hey, be quiet. Jesus is not for you. You're receiving what you deserve. Jesus is here for something different. They tell him to be quiet. Then we read this. Verse 49. Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart. Like, hey, Jesus heard you. Get up. He is calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. He's calling out. He's calling out. The people go get him because Jesus says, go bring that blind beggar, Bartimaeus, to me. And he throws off his cloak, and he's grasping for Jesus. He's trying to find him. And we read this. Jesus said to him, what? do you want me to do for you? Now, does that sound familiar? What did he say to Peter, or to James and John? James and John come to Jesus and say, Jesus, listen, we want you to do whatever we ask, okay? And Jesus' response is, what do you want me to do for you? The blind beggar is calling out to Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me, throws off his cloak, is grasping for Jesus, and Jesus asks him, what do you want me to do for you? Now, Jesus' response to James and John when they ask for power is to give them a lesson on leadership. When the blind beggar asks for mercy, what does Jesus give? Look at the next section, verse 52. And Jesus said to him, go your own way. Your faith has made you well. 
and immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. See, here's the lesson that I believe that is jumping out of this section of scripture. When you ask God for power, he gives you a lesson on Christian leadership. When you ask God for mercy, he gives you mercy. What are you asking Jesus for? Are you asking him for power? Are you asking him for mercy? Because when you ask for power, you get a lesson. (laughs) But when you ask for mercy, God grants you mercy. You see, the gospel tells you this, that Jesus drank your cup of judgment, that he was submerged in a baptism of disaster that you don't have to face through faith in him. You are free of that. You receive a cup of mercy. You receive a baptism of mercy. The book of Ephesians says it like this, that God is rich in mercy. He is rich in mercy. He has made you alive in Christ when you were dead in your sins, for it is by grace you have been saved. The mercy of God to make you alive in Christ, identifying with Christ, one with Christ. When you were dead in your sins, when you deserved judgment, you received mercy. When you deserved condemnation, you received grace. When you ask for mercy, God grants you mercy. Jesus drank your cup and was submerged in the disaster that you deserve so that you don't have to drink that same cup and you don't have to face that same disaster. You see, judgment for you and for me has been cast off. But what do we do? We continue to bring it close to ourselves over and over and over again. We may know that, that God's mercy is extended to me, that he is rich in mercy. For by grace I've been saved. I was dead in my sins, but I'm alive in Christ. But so many times we bring judgment to ourselves. It's as if we live in a very similar culture to that blind beggar. We believe that the things we're facing in our life is because God is judging us for something we've done. We think that in our minds, maybe you've said that before. Maybe to God or to somebody else. Yeah, I know why I'm struggling in this area. I know why I'm facing that. I mean, it's a consequence. It's a curse that God is giving me. And now if I work for God and if I I try hard and if I'm working well for God, then I'm going to receive blessings. But if I mess up and if I make mistakes, then I'm going to receive curses and judgment. Sometimes we operate like this. Failed relationships, failed career opportunities, an unfavorable medical diagnosis, mental distress, the list goes on, that these things are because God is judging us. He's withholding blessing. He doesn't want to give mercy because we don't deserve it. We haven't been doing the right things and operating the right way. And so here's what happens. When Jesus passes by in a sermon, in a Bible study, through a friend, you're silent. Sit back. It's not for me to go. I didn't have a good week. I had a bad month. I keep struggling with the same thing. I can't come to Jesus right now. I'm just going to be quiet. You rebuke yourself. What's the lesson? Throw your cloak off. Throw your cloak off and run to Jesus because mercy triumphs over judgment. Jesus did not drink the cup of your judgment. He was not submerged under the disaster that you deserve for your sins so that you could continue to drink that cup and submerge yourself again. 
He did not go through that for your sake and to extend free mercy to you and free grace to you that you can continue to judge yourself. That is not who God is and that is not the gospel that we believe in at all. You see, go to Jesus. Don't be silent and ask for mercy and let Jesus serve you. He serves mercy and peace and support and comfort when you come to him in that way. Because he is the son of man who came not to be served, but to serve. And he proved it by giving his life as a ransom for you. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's why the book of Hebrews tells us that we are, with no conditions, not because you had a good week, you're doing really well, but we are in any moment when we are in a time of need and we, have, we need help from God to come to him with confidence. To come to his throne of grace and mercy with confidence. Judgment for you has been cast off. In fact, it's been cast upon Jesus who died for it and was buried for it but rose for it as well. Don't bring it to yourself. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Listen, mercy triumphs over the judgment that your sins deserve. Mercy triumphs over the judgment that you struggle with because you've received it from other people. Mercy triumphs over the judgment that you bring to yourself. There's not any judgment that you can feel and hold on to and carry around that mercy does not triumph over. I really want you to hear that tonight, church. You are not to live your life judging yourself, believing that God judges you, living for the approval of other people and being just totally submerged in disaster when you feel others are judging you as well. You are not to live a life of judgment at all. You're to live a life of freedom because you have mercy extended to you because Jesus drank your cup and he was baptized under disaster for you. That is the gospel of grace that should change the way you think, the way you live, the way you behave, your relationships, how you engage in work. Every aspect of your life should change because mercy has been given to you.